So flip to Romans 11 if you have your Bibles with you. Romans chapter 11, we're going to look at 1 through 6 today, calling this message a remnant by grace. Romans 11, let's read it and then we'll pray and take a look. Romans 11 verse 1, these are the words of God. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace... It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Let's pray. Our Father and gracious God, we come now to look at your word and we we come to be challenged and inspired. We, We come to be convicted and we also come to be given hope. As the psalmist says, let the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So open our hearts as we open our Bibles. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So, it's been well observed that when Jesus, the reason Jesus chose 12 disciples and not 13 or not 75, the reason Jesus chose 12 disciples is because Jesus is Jacob, or rather Israel. Remember the story of Jacob, how his name was changed to Israel. So, the 12 disciples, essentially then, were the new 12 tribes of this brand new Israel. So Jesus, you can say, in his ministry was reconstituting and rebuilding Israel the way she was always supposed to be. That's why he chose 12. Um, and by the way, that's really not a controversial understanding either. It's pretty much by and large accepted by, by most scholars, theologians, and pastors, etc. So. Why 12 disciples? Well, there were 12 tribes. So Jesus is Israel. He's the new Israel. And so he's rebuilding what Israel was always supposed to be. And you might say that what Jesus has done is make sure that the human race, that there's a human race that is based on the promises of grace and not on the promises or the false promises of the works of self-righteousness. So just always remember there are two types of people, those in Adam and those in Christ, the second Adam. (laughs) That's how the world can be divvied up. So what Jesus has done is secured a race of people, a a new human race, if you will, a new people in Adam that are saved by grace, who live and stand in that grace. And that's what redemption is. And so that's what Jesus is attempting to do through the gospel of the kingdom. So as we approach chapter 11, we'll have to keep this in mind. And I'll just let you know, like I was dreading this chapter. And um, mostly because it's, it's very challenging. <laughs> There's a lot of debate in a lot of areas, so I'm going to do my best, of course. But it's a tough chapter with a lot of varying problems to work through. And that's why we're going to take it in smaller chunks. My hope is... I'm still praying about what to do with this. I'm thinking after we get to 
chapter through chapter 11, I might pause and do a series that's just sort of a basic Christianity 101 sort of thing and just to remind us of, of, of some things that I think are important. Um, but I, I haven't made that decision yet, so we'll see. So the basic idea, at least as it stands from Romans 1 through 10, is that there are two ways to be Israel. He's compared and contrasted these two ways in a variety of different manners, but there are two ways to be, quote-unquote, Israel. There is the way of the flesh. He says this a lot in Romans and Galatians as well, but there's the way of the flesh, which relies on the Torah, the law, to grant favor from God. And then, that's one way, that's what those in Adam do. And then there is the way of the promise, the way of grace, which relies completely on Christ to grant us favor from God. So you, if you don't love Jesus, and you're at, that means you're at odds with, with God. You, you don't have Christ in your life. You are at enmity with God. But if you do have Christ, by His grace you've been saved, right? Then you are in favor with God. Uh, if you recall the early chapters of Genesis, there's this unique statement where it says, Noah found favor with God. And that should not be interpreted to mean Noah was walking along and then suddenly became epistemologically self-conscious enough to think, wow, I'm going to choose God today and, and I'm going to earn my way to heaven and that sort of mindset. And then God looked on that and thought, wow, that's so noble of you, Noah. I think I'll use you. When it says Noah found favor with God, it's Noah's walking along, tripping along, um, and he's trying to be faithful to God. He's not a perfect man, but God gave him grace. So that's the, that's the difference. So there's a way to be Israel that's solely in terms of Abraham. And then there's a way to be Israel that's solely in terms of Jesus, who fulfills what Abraham, Abraham actually does and says. Remember the conversation from John 6. Uh, I believe it's in John 6. John 6 is a long chapter. But Jesus essentially... Um, is arguing with the religious leaders, and they say to him, our father's Abraham. And, and Jesus, being the kind, gentle person that he is, says, well, actually, your father's the devil. <laughs> and so they, that, they were trying to be Israel on, in one way, solely in terms of I can point myself back to Abraham. And Jesus says, that's not enough. That's not enough. So Jesus, the wisdom of God, he's the incarnation of the wisdom of God. He's the incarnation of the law of God, so to speak. Jesus rebuilds, he reconstructs, he reforms what it means to be the Israel of God, the people of God. And what it means to be is the Israel of God is to be people chosen by grace. You're chosen by grace to take the covenant promises of God into the world for the worldwide blessing and redemption of the nations. You have been given grace so that you can give it to others. Your spouse, your children, kids, your brother, your sister. You have been given grace by Christ so that you can give it to other people. So that means there's no room for bitterness. There's no room to hang on of a grudge. There's no room for gossip and slander and, and all these things. And why is there no room for that in your life? Because there, that's not what God gives you. That's you being a fleshly sinner. But if you've been given grace, you can give it to others. And that's the whole point. Individually, corporately, that crossing crown's been given grace. Why? So we can give it to others. You know, and there, 
there's been a lot of that going on in our church. Just kind of a side note, I was going to mention this earlier, but it's really neat to see people just sort of jump into action. Uh, this weekend, last night, um, a, cl- a clog sink, we'll deal with it. You know, like these types of things. And there are a lot of that that goes on in this church that you don't always see. But that's awesome. It's remarkable. That's people who are bathed in grace, who are going out and living in grace and giving it to others. And that's the whole point of the kingdom is for us to do that. So that's what he focuses on here. So let's look at our text and we'll just walk through it and I'll make some comments as we go. So Paul writes in verse one, you can follow along. Verse one, I ask then, has God rejected his people? You know, based on everything that's just been said, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant. That word descendant is actually uh, where we get the word seed. So he's a literal physical seed of Abraham, descendant. He's a member of the tribe of Benjamin, Paul says. So based on the fact that by and large, Israel had tripped over the Messiah stone, that's sort of what he's been talking about since the end of chapter 9, uh, you either build your life on Christ or you trip over him. And it looks like most of Israel has tripped over him. If that's true, though, does that mean that God himself should be thrown in the docket and accused of injustice? Is God unfaithful? God sent Jesus the Messiah. He was a Jewish Messiah to Israel. Many believed, but by and large, many did not. Does that mean God failed? Is God unfaithful? And he says, no way. Why would you perish the thought? That No way can you ever think that. Thousands of Jews, if you remember from Acts, converted in the preaching of Peter and the disciples. Yet, most remained hardened to the gospel. Now, does this mean that God has replaced Israel with the Gentiles? I'm going to talk about that more in a minute, but the answer is no. It doesn't mean that God has replaced Israel with the Gentiles. Does this mean that God has gone with option B? You know, I sent Jesus, and you know what? They just hated him and they had Rome put him to death in this this um, staged coup, if you will. And, um, you know, I guess option B is next. What do you think? That God doesn't think in those terms. He doesn't do that sort of thing. So no way, he doesn't do that. But what's the evidence? Well, Paul gives himself as a very first witness. What is his proof that God has been faithful? Look at me, Paul says. Look at me. Similar to uh, Philippians 3, we have a glimpse at Paul's resume here. He himself is at the front of the Israelite line. He is the literal seed of Abraham. Abraham is his great, 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 several great granddaddy. (laughs) That's that's Paul. Um, For the most part, the Benjaminites, the tribe of Benjamin, were able to trace their lineage a lot better than the other tribes. Paul is a Benjaminite. He knows who his ancestors are. He knows those people. So if anyone is Israel, it's Paul. Philippians 3, he tells us more about his, his um, studying the law and just being zealous, and, and he, he was it. This is the guy. If there ever is the poster child for what it means to be an Israelite, Paul is saying, that's me. That's me. So if anyone is, he is. And we should note, look what God has done in his life. If you go back to you know, Acts, he's, we first learn of Saul was his name, right? 
That was his Hebrew name. His Greek name would have been Paulos in, in Greek, but Paul, his Roman Greek name, um, he had a life-changing experience. So he most definitely had a proof that God had been faithful to him. Look at the grace he gave to him. He was trying to see Christians killed, and God said, no, enough of that, and he converts the man. So Paul, in other words, he's like this huge flashing LED sign that proves that God is not done with his people. Verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, he says. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Now, the foreknowledge of God isn't something new here. Uh, He's been talking about it in several chapters now. But God has predestined, he has ordained before the foundations of the earth these things to take place. God has predestined what he has predestined, and to believe that God is unfaithful simply because the majority of Israel rejected Christ is to be in error. You're not thinking straight. Yet again, Paul appeals to Scripture, by the way, there in verse 2, uh, 1 Samuel 12:22 is almost a direct, a near direct quote. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. It's from 1 Samuel 12. Interesting side note here, and um, I think, well, I know, as far as I can know, but that Paul is carefully using his argument the way he is. Samuel, if you remember the story of the prophet Samuel, Samuel refused to stop interceding on behalf of Israel, despite their rebellion. Israel had rebelled. Remember what, remember what Israel wanted? They want a king. They wanted a king like all the other nations. So they were, they were headlong into rebellion. They wanted nothing to do with Yahweh being king. They wanted their own set, set of king, sort of king. So Samuel doesn't want to stop interceding. And Paul has done the same thing already. He's wishing to intercede on behalf of his fellow kinsmen, just like Moses. Remember, Moses goes before God and says, kill me and not them. Don't, they're just a bunch of you know, ignorant people. They don't know what's going on. Sort of what Jesus says, forgive them for they know not what they do. So Moses intercedes and Paul's doing the same thing. He wants to intercede for his people who haven't believed the gospel. So he too, like King Saul of old, has been tasked with interceding for Israel. And by the way, just a reminder that our posture, and don't miss this because Paul is totally, he's exemplifying this, but our posture towards unbelievers ought to be from a genuine concern from their sal- for their salvation. Okay, I know you, you can look at all the wickedness and especially in the political mess that it is and you see a lot of unbelievers and a lot of pagan ideas and, and it's easy to sort of just be bitter at those people or um, you know, be angry. And, and Paul says to be angry and don't sin. So you can be angry. Anger, anger is not a sin inherently, but you can, what you do with it obviously can become an, become an issue. But we ought to pity people, frankly, um, and, and not pity them in like a condescending way. Oh, I pity you that you're so dumb. <laughs> no, no, that's not, that's not, not, not it either. Maybe don't verbalize it. <laughs> that's when you get into trouble. All right, verse 3. And he's quoting uh, what Elijah says here. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. When Andy read that from 1 Kings 19, the, there's one phrase that's not quoted by Paul, but it is there. 
and that is the issue of they have forsaken your covenant. So that phrase was in there. They have forsaken your covenant. So from 1 Kings 19, this is the story of Elijah and Ahab. If you remember Elijah, he had won this amazing battle against the prophets of Baal. And they're up on the mountain and, and Elijah, he keeps soaking the altar with water, more water, more water. And then God, the prophets of Baal tried to call on their God and, and they're not answering. And Elijah's like, well, maybe they're in the bathroom. Uh, there's debate on that Hebrew phrase, by the way, but totally makes a mockery of their gods, you know. He can't hear you. He's in the porta potty. But, um, but so they put water on the altar and then God just consumes the whole thing. He consumes all the water. He consumes the altar. And then guess what Elijah does? And this is not how to be a nice Christian, but he went and took a sword and killed them all. So judgment happened for them. Uh, and it was righteous and just and good that that happened. So Elijah won that battle. Things were going really well for him. But so it was a it was a huge victory for the kingdom of light. But the other thing was the drought that had happened was going to now come to an end. God was going to bless, going to bless Israel. God had won. Now Jezebel, and uh, just not a great name. Don't name your kid that. Uh, but Jezebel, too much too much connotation there, right? Jezebel, who loved Baal more than God, wanted Elijah dead. She was furious with him. She wanted him dead. So Elijah runs away. Uh, Elijah is, you know, FBI's after him, CIA. He runs away. That's how bad things were. He's lonely. He's hungry. He's depressed. He's altogether exhausted. The world's falling apart, it seems. He's the only one left to fight. He doesn't have the energy to keep on going. Some of you have been in that medical freedom fight for a while. Uh, we, some of us in, in the abortion fight. And it just seems like... How can we possibly make progress? And that you can, we'll talk about that in a little bit, but you can sort of put yourself in that corner and say, well, I guess I'm the only faithful one. Well, that's not true. But Israel, back then, when Elijah was going through this, Israel had apostatized. The nation was in an inexorable ruin. They were, everything was wicked, okay? You think America's wicked? Yes, same thing going on there. Prophets were being murdered. The worship of Yahweh had collapsed. It's all over. Everything is just a mess. The system is irreparable, or is it? Look at verse 4. But what is God's reply to him? Paul says, what is God's reply to Elijah, who just found himself as the only one faithful? Things are bad. What am I to do? What does God say? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Paul cites 1 Kings 19, verse 18, to prove a key point here. What's the key point? Just as in Elijah's day, so in Paul's day. God's faithfulness to his people always outweighs the sin, always outweighs the corruption, always outweighs the injustice. Okay, you look at the world around you and you think, wow, things are kind of crazy. What you should think and the next thought is, well, but God is faithful. God is faithful. In Ahab's day, God had prepared 7,000, a remnant by grace, a remnant by grace, who had not forsaken the covenant. There were 7,000 that had not forsaken the covenant, have not participated in the injustice. They are not culpable. They are the ones who are worshiping Yahweh. It's interesting. Um, Aaron and I were talking about this this week, but 
you, you think about the corruption in D.C., and, and there are some good guys there. There are some great men and women who are there fighting. They just don't get the microphone because they're not, they're not towing the mainstream line, right? But they're there. Um, Obadiah was a person who was in Ahab's cabinet. Obadiah was a faithful. He was one of the, one of the 7,000. If you go back and read the, those passages in 1 Kings, you can learn about that. Ahab was a terrible person. Jehab, Je Jezebel was a terrible person. They were wicked. But yet God had faithful people in certain places. And we thank God for that. But the same is true in Paul's day. That's why he cites this passage to describe his current situation. He says in verse 5, So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. By grace God has preserved a people, a small people, a remnant, in order to carry out the purposes of God in redemptive history. And this was done in accordance to the election of grace. That's a more literal tra translation. And then finally, look at verse 6. He says, But if it's by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So this remnant is the true Israel. They are a group of believing Jews and believing Gentiles who are, the true, who are true to the covenant of grace. They are the people of God. This, this alone, no matter how small the remnant, proves God's faithfulness to Israel. It proves that God has always been faithful to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's always been faithful in the most trying times of Israelite history. And he's in Paul's day, and Paul says the same thing. God is always faithful. He's always faithful. And the other thing is, his faithfulness by giving people grace and redeeming them by grace, even though they seem like a small number, that's the seed with which God will establish his renewed people. And he will renew his people and he will grow his people to the ends of the earth. All right, <clears throat> a couple things to consider and then we'll sort of just tie it all together here. All right. Um, first, there's much debate on how we should understand Israel vis-a-vis -vis the Gentiles. How do we understand Israel in relationship to the Gentiles? Hi. <laughs> <laughs> do the Gentiles replace Israel? Do the Gentiles replace Israel? Or, and this is another popular belief today because rapture fever is back and everybody wants off planet Earth at the moment. Is there some future restoration of Israel that we're waiting for in order for the end times to begin? So do, do the Gentiles replace Israel, and are we waiting for some future thing to happen so that the end times can, can, so the real fireworks can begin? The answer to both of those questions is emphatically no. No. Israel, if you recall, well, historically you'll recall, recall but back in 1948, they were recognized as a nation. All right? And many uh, dispensational writers end times purveyors, they were the ones who said, okay, 40 years after that, it's all over. In fact, the book 88 Reasons Why the Rapture is Going to Happen in 1988 came out. And then 1988 went away. And then the guy said, I made a calculation error. He wrote 89 Reasons it's going to happen in 1989. And then 1990 came. Okay, and this is the pattern ever since. Israel becoming a nation in 1948 has zero prophetic significance. None. 
Nothing. It means nothing for a biblical worldview. Uh, actually, maybe not nothing. The only thing it means is that Israel needs to be discipled and worship Christ, just like China and Pakistan and, and other nations. Okay. So it has nothing to do with ushering in the end times. And I'm not a pastor who subscribes to what's called replacement theology because people who believe in the rapture stuff and, and the chaos of end times will say to you, well, you must believe in replacement theology. You think the Gentiles just replaced Israel and now Israel has no significance. And I just, you know, I shake my head in dismay. Uh, no, I believe in fulfillment theology. And I want to explain that real quick because I think it's important. In other words, as I mentioned at the beginning, there are two ways to be Israel, two ways to be the people of God. And this is because of what we call the objectivity of the covenant. The objectivity of the covenant. The covenant, covenant means something. Okay, that's when, when you're baptized, you baptize your kids. When they're baptized, we're not like, oh, look at how amazing you are. No, it's never that. It's look how amazing God is. So the covenant is objective, it's fixed, it's stuck there, and we either subscribe to it or, um, or we don't. And that's the issue, and that's why ethics matters more, because there's an ethical component to the covenant that, that requires their obedience um, by grace, through faith. So you can be Israel, follow my um, air quotes here, because it's important. You can be Israel the same way that Jacob was Israel. And you can be Israel the same way Esau was Israel, which is to say not at all. Okay, You can be in the covenant with all of the outwardly recognizable signs. Okay? Baptize, take communion, go to church, uh, all outward signs. You can be in the covenant that way. But you may not be actually regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God inwardly. So th think of it this way. Esau was just as much as a grandson to, of Abraham as was Jacob. And yet we know from Romans 9 that Jacob was chosen, Esau was not. Jacob was elected by grace. Esau had hardened his heart, had chosen his own path, and God turned him over. The Bible in Hebrews does not have a lot of good things to say about Esau. None, in fact. So, so covenant is what matters. Election by grace is what matters. Not lineage, not bloodline. So I don't care all day if you say, well, Abraham, I'm actually a descendant of Abraham. Oh, that's fun. Nice. That means nothing. It means nothing. And Paul says as much. Look, I'm from Abraham. It doesn't mean anything. Grace is what matters. Election by grace is what matters. <laughs> so in order to be established, in order for, for God to establish and defend his covenant, he needed to establish the continuity of his covenant with his people. There had to be a transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. There was a transition there. And that's what the remnant by grace simply was. This is what the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus does. So yes, by and large, in Paul's day, Israel had rejected the Messiah. There were a lot of unbelieving Jews who did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. Paul, he's deeply concerned about his kinsmen, but he also knows that it doesn't mean that God is to blame, nor does it mean that God's faithfulness is now on trial. Rather, the proof, as it were, is in the pudding. God has, in fact, been faithful. His faithfulness is proven by the believing Jews and the believing Gentiles who are filing in through the door at a rapid pace. 
People are coming to Christ, Paul says. The nation's going to the world. I mean, the gospel got to Rome. Eventually, it got to Rome. There were Christians in Rome before Romans was written. The gospel was going into the world. So people are coming to Christ, yes and amen. And I'll just say this. It is reductionistic and and therefore erroneous to assert that the Gentiles simply replaced the Israelites. That's not even a category. Um, you may have some reformed people that would say that, but I just I don't know why you would say that because it's just a categorical error. <laughs> it's like, do you eat do you eat round fruit? No, I eat oranges and apples. Sort of like you're. It's really confusing. I don't know why you would say that. So to be Israel is to be in covenant with God. But again, not all, not all Israel belong to Israel. He says, not all seed of Abraham belong to Abraham. Not all who possess the lineage possess saving faith. So we'll dig into more of that in the next couple of weeks. But for now, just know that Israel has two categories. One, there is Israel according to the flesh. They are the people who can trace their ancestry by bloodline all the way back to Abraham. By the way, in AD 70, when Rome destroyed Jerusalem, a lot of the records were destroyed anyway. So even today, a modern, quote-unquote, Jewish person, um, as far as tracing lineage, it's, it's, it's very hard. You, you, you can't tell. You just don't know. Do I go back to the which tribe? There's oral tradition. There's those types of things. But for the most part, there's, you can't really tell. So these people, they're, they're according to the flesh. They're children of bloodline of Abraham. Yes, they believe the works of the Torah are important for life and, and living and so on. But ultimately, they're unbelievers. They're people who do not worship and serve Jesus Christ. Okay? So it's a fallacy to say that Israel right now, today, overseas in that nation, is somehow God's chosen people. God's chosen people are elected by grace. They believe the Messiah. Are there some chosen people there that have yet to turn to Christ and believe? Yes and amen. Just like there are communists in China who need to repent and believe the gospel. Just like there are people in our town that need to repent and believe the gospel. But there's no possible way to make that argument because you're changing what it means to be Israel. Paul tells us what is Israel. Israel are the people of grace. That's the second group. People according to the promise. People who trace, there's some that might trace their lineage to Abraham, but they don't trust in that. They don't trust in the works of the law. They trust in, in the Messiah. But then in that Israel category, you have people like all of us here. Gentiles who don't have a lineage that goes back to Abraham. People who are not in the covenant, in the old covenant in that sense. But we believe and trust the Messiah nonetheless. So these are the two ways to be, to, to be Israel. These are the two ways to hear and see the gospel. One is actually seeing, one is actually hearing. And the other one is actually nothing. And that's because grace always gets results. Okay, grace always gets results. So let's apply it today. <clears throat> There's this great temptation to want to look at the crumbling world around us throw our hands in the air and adopt, uh, I've, I've always called it the Elijah syndrome. The Elijah syndrome. N not to pick too much on Elijah, he was uh, the greatest prophet up until John the Baptist. Jesus says John the Baptist is the greatest of all the prophets. But in the Old Covenant, Elijah is a very important prophet. 
But not to pick on him, the work of grace sometimes is just underground, and that's what happened with Elijah. But there is a temptation to think that you're the only one left. No one will listen to me on what's going on with medical freedom. No one will pay attention to my concerns about vaccination. No one will pay attention to the fact that we keep murdering children in the womb. No one seems to care. No one seems to care. I'm the only one. There's a temptation to think that. You can, with this syndrome, paint yourself into a corner, complain about everyone else's failures, and fail to see perhaps your own shortcomings and your own failures. You can do that. What Elijah got right was the reality of the moral deterioration in Israel. He saw the wickedness and he was right. It's right for all of you to see what's going on right now as being very not good. (laughs) You're right in that assessment. That is a good assessment. And frankly, if you don't see what's going on and and think it's not good, your barometer is broken. Okay. It's a mess and it's bad. It's bad. But Elijah got that right. The prophets are being silenced by the status. I'll tell you right now, there will be a time if this thing doesn't turn around and repentance isn't granted, they, you think the shutting down of, for whatever reason, the church has decided to roll over. I get that. Which tells us something. What happens when they actually do start shutting you down? Well, they'll, they'll roll over. They rolled over when they didn't have to. They will silence the church. It will happen. So the, they, they silence the prophets, right? They, they silence Christ. You better believe they're going to try to silence you. This, this whole social media thing and everything that's going on. You know, for whatever issue, the whole, the, the big tech thing is a new thing. Are they, are they media? Are they protect? You know, is this like a, a media outlet or is this a social media platform? What is a social media pra- platform? How, you know, it affects millions of people, billions across the world. It's not just like a small private business where the guy gets to say, no, I'm not going to bake that cake for you. It's different. So there's a lot of questions right now of what's going on. But one thing is true. They silence Christ. They're going to silence you. They're going to try. And that's what Jezebel had tried to do with Elijah. Tried to silence him. So the people in Israel were largely worshiping Baal, not God. Uh, the God of America is Moloch. We keep sacrificing children to Moloch. That's what we do. Okay. Injustice was happening then. It was happening in Paul's day. It's happening in our day. But this is where, okay, so I complimented you all. Now I'm going to criticize you. Um, You all were getting it right. Yeah, things are bad. Great, great, great. But here's what Elijah got wrong. Elijah got wrong the fact that he underappreciated the grace of God. He underappreciated the grace of God, which is always... always, always, always working behind the scenes to preserve a remnant even when we can't always see it. So the right thing to do is look at our world and say, boy, this is a mess. Everyone needs Jesus and we all need to calm down and take a breath. That's right. The wrong thing to do is say, oh, it's just going to hit the fan and and there's no hope and I'm just going to go run and hide. That's the wrong answer. The right answer is God is faithful God's grace is more powerful than any sinful thing any politician or anybody can do. And God will win the day. That's the right answer. So don't be tempted to think the opposite. There was a remnant in Elijah's day, preparing the way for Christ. There was a remnant in Paul's day, faithful and true to the gospel. And the same thing can be said today. The remnant exists and moves and has their being in grace. And sometimes that grace is underground. Sometimes the grace of God in China is in a cave 
where it's dark or dimly lit and you're worshiping God together for fear of death. That's grace. Sometimes grace is in the shadows. It's not always front and center. However, remember that it is grace that governs your life. It's grace that governs the remnant. Grace governs your life. Not the headlines, not the news feeds, not false hope, not wishful thinking, not self-righteousness. Grace. It's grace upon grace. By grace you have been saved through faith. And, and that's because the school of Christ isn't flashy. This isn't flashy. Sometimes it looks like despair. In Elijah's case, it was very much despair. This roller coaster of emotions that ends with despondency. And yet what we learn from this passage is that God is always at work, even when things look bleak. Always. It is the remnant, the prophets, the faithful Christians who serve Christ above all things, no matter what the state tells you, right? The, the, including and especially what Caesar may in fact tell you. They're always chosen by, by grace and they plant their flag in that grace. Speaking of flags, this also means we need to resist the temptation. Part of the remnant, part of being the remnant means that you don't fly the remnant flag. <laughs> hey, I'm the only one faithful. Look at me go. The, the Qumran community, they were the Essenes. John the Baptist was influenced by them. The Qumran, if you, if you go to the Bible Museum, Museum of the Bible in, in D.C., and um, make your way past the guards that, that are checking for your mask, uh, make your way past that and get up and you can see some of the, um, the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Qumran community, they left, they left Jerusalem. They thought Jerusalem was going to burn. Of course, they were right, but for the wrong reasons. They went and hid... The, the Dead Sea Scrolls today that we found back in the late 70s, those are all from them. It's amazing. It's great. But being a remnant doesn't mean you fly that flag. Look at us. All of you are pagans. All of you Christians. There, there are Christians who are functionally pagans, but don't fly that flag. It, it doesn't mean going around telling everyone that you know, you're part of the remnant team. Hi, I'm part of Cross and Crown. We are the remnant. Now you sound like a cult, frankly. See, it's much more subtle than this. And the reason it's more subtle than that is because it's based on grace. It's based on grace, not self-righteousness. Grace, not works, as he says in verse 6. A few more things and we'll be wrapping up. It's sort of like the rules for Fight Club. <laughs> Think of it this way. You don't talk about it, right? The first rule of being the remnant is you don't talk about being the remnant. You don't claim to be the remnant, you just are, right? And the only way to be is to be elected by grace, to stand in awe of the gospel and the law word of God, to be faithful in all times, to be faithful, parents, in every moment of every day. Children, for you too, to be faithful to what God requires of you, to put down the newspapers and the news feeds and start listening to the chief shepherd. That's who we need to listen to most. That's remnant theology. And right now, what you're witnessing, by the way, the gods of this nation are being paraded in front of us. They're being paraded in front of us. The progressivism of the left, you know, Pelosi's all, yeah, no, no gender terminology in the house. And then her first speech, she's like, I'm a wife and a grandmother. And like, you just broke your own stupid rule. She's a witch. Um, she needs Jesus, definitely. But this progressivism that's going off of cliff, but then you have ineptitude on the right, because they're, they're, they're just yesterday's Dems. A lot, of, a lot of them are. Many of them are faithful. 
But all this is front and center. We're watching the altars of Christ be demolished. What are the altars of Christ? What has Christ established? The family. They're being torn down. The family. Um, uh, Church. Biblical justice. All of these things that Christianity gave the world are being torn down in front of your eyes. Because those are the altars of Christ. These institutions that Christians have built are being torn down. You get, you get them torn down, you get them deplatformed, you get them silenced, right? All of these things. Now, the problem with that is idolatry is being erected in its place. This new version of family. Give your kids to the public school system and let them teach them about gender and let them teach them uh, how to discover their own pronouns however they want. I and mean, this is the nonsense we have going on. That's idolatry. Politics, education, economics, etc. All of it's downstream from culture. But what's at the fountainhead? What is it that informs the rest of your world? That's your God. What informs your worldview? That's your God. That's how you know. It is for us, of course, we need to say it is Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ and his law word that informs culture or should inform culture. But today we have a syncretistic, compromised church bent on being seen as cool. They've left their battle stations and decided to give the stream over to a different fountainhead, a different God. And listen, whenever the church abandons its post, always know that some other aberrant theology will gladly take its place. Which means that right now, the church has not been founded on the election of grace, but it's been founded on something else. Why else would she retreat from the world? Why else would she be so enamored by the idea of escaping the world? Why else would she nervously hand-wring in the corner, uncertain of what will happen, cowering in fear? What might the state tell us next? Why else would she seek to be governed by anything and everything but Jesus Christ and his kingdom? And that's because she's lost her first love. Remnants are established by grace and remnants who are established by grace, they don't cower, they fight. They don't cower, they fight. They don't pander, they preach truth. They don't worry, they exercise faith. They don't escape, they hold the line. They don't fret in terror, they trust King Jesus. Remnants are people who are absolutely convinced that when everyone else seems to have lost their minds, that God is at work underground and in the shadows, establishing his people by grace in order to top the principalities and powers and exalt Christ's name in the public square. That's it right there. That's the victory of the gospel. So rest assured, things are a little bit murky, a lot of it murky right now. Um, The faithful Christian, your job is to stare the enemies of Christ right in the face, respond with grace and truth, and here's, here's your attitude. Though they have us surrounded, we, though they have us surrounded, we have them right where we want them to be. We have them right where we want them to be. Christianity has always, always, always been a religion of worldwide conquest, but it's never done by storming the Capitol building, burning down your neighbor's business because of an injustice in the streets. It's never about legislating yourself into more and more freedom. Okay, the, none of that. The conquest of the gospel is accomplished through the very same means that gave credence to it in the first place. By what? Grace through faith. Grace through faith. So servanthood dominion, okay, church? Servanthood dominion, not escapist religion. 
That's the message. That's the goal. So by all means, you know, let us seek to be the remnant, but not for personal gain or pompousity or arrogance. Let us be established in the grace of God who raised Jesus from the dead and from there stand firm in that glorious grace. And I'll tell you, if, if idols are going to be toppled and the Lordship of Christ is going to be established, so if that's going to happen, let us be encouraged and reminded that even in all these difficult times, that God has 7,000 or probably even more. Probably even more. Let's pray. Father, you have established us by your grace and you have given us your, the gift of faith as well to go with it. And, and we're thankful for that. We are humbled and honored to be chosen by you. And, and we know that we don't boast in that as if we were good enough to be chosen or, or, uh, or impressive enough to be chosen. Uh, you have just simply given us your grace. We didn't deserve it. Otherwise, it would no longer be grace. And we can't earn it, otherwise it's no longer grace. It is your kindness, your loving kindness, that has established us as your people. So we are grateful for that. We glory in that. Father, with a world that seems to be just a disheveled mess, nothing seems to be, to be uh, uh, favorable to, for, the, for the cause of justice and righteousness in, in the public. And, and we don't want to fret, and we don't want to be scared, and we're not trying to escape, Father. We want to be taught by your word, taught to fight, to be servants, to show people the way of the kingdom, to see this nation healed the way it ought to be. So would you encourage us today, we pray. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.